Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who has known the world over for his zeitgeist-defining role as Damien in the 2004 hit Mean Girls. Beyond the burn book, he starred in such notable titles as HBO's Looking, Larry Clark's Bully, and the remake of I Spit on Your Grave. Also a stand-up, he's the creator of a number of live comedy shows, including Jersey Shorzical, a frickin' rock opera. A committed activist, he's lent his name to many LGBTQ and AIDS HIV causes, including serving as an ambassador for Lambda Legal and the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. Please welcome to the show, actor, writer, activist, fellow Italian, and so much more, Daniel Francesi. Hey, what's up, Paisan? Hey, it's so good to hear you and to have you on the show. Uh, I'm just so glad that you were able to uh, take some time out and join me today. Yeah, I've been dying to be on this show. Dying. <laughs> Already in the spirit. I love it. Uh, so how, how, are, how are things? How are you doing? Holding up during this strange moment in our history. You know, it is strange, but like, what, what about my life is normal anyway? You know what I mean? Like, sometimes I'm like... Uh, in London and the next day I have to be in Ohio, you know, so it's like, this is just like another weird thing that I'm going through. And um, I feel bad for the people who are more affected by it than I am, because I'm actually, um, you know, just trying to adjust creatively and financially. Not, you know, as long as I got my health, I feel good about it. Yeah, and I think you tap into something there, too. When, when you work in entertainment and, and you live this sort of odd carnival life, for lack of a better term, that a lot of us do in the industry... There is no necessarily normal day to day. So I think that like a lot of the people I know in, in the creative fields, it's it's a strange moment, but we don't feel quite as unnerved as people who have like the structured day to day jobs because we're sort of used to, all right, well, maybe you're on set for a month or two and then there's a break and things are like sort of uneven and strange and then you're off to do this or you're doing a tour or you're blah, 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 blah. Well, that's so I, I don't know. Maybe, that's a great point to think about with horror movies because all of a sudden you have night shoots and then all of a sudden you're a night owl and you're up all night no matter what kind of uh, normal body clock you have. And then the next day, you know, you know, you get like a one day off and then you're back to doing morning. It's 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 a very, you know, I'm, I'm used to having odd sleep. Exactly. Well, speaking of horror movies, why don't we just kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. It's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? What I like about horror is I feel like when you are in a horror movie, you are so tensed up. You're, you get like nervous and like all like you get scared and all these kind of emotions and everything happens to you. And then when the credits roll and you know what happens and the mystery is solved and, and whoever survives or doesn't survive and you have all that in your head, there's like this sigh of relief that I think is uh, comparable to getting like a full body massage that I think that people just go, Oh, that wasn't real. And now I'm here and now I'm comfortable. And it allows you to be cozier for the rest of the night in a very odd way. I like the idea of thinking of horror as a full body massage. You know, I've had a lot of guests talk about how there's a catharsis to it. And I guess that that's, that speaks to that. It's sort of like both a mental and physical release. Like the idea that we, we put anxiety into this, this thing for 90 minutes. And at the end, there's sort of a, a, just a, a, an ability to let go the way you can't let go necessarily of your anxieties and fears in the real world. Well, also, you know, it's interesting uh, since most of our world and speaking on queer horror is driven by toxic masculinity. It, this is a, a situation where even uh, the most toxic of masculine men feel vulnerable uh, using what I call the, the tickle pinch method, which I find delightful in horror. 
uh, traditions is basically where they'll show, you know, uh, a woman's breasts and then all of a sudden someone will be tickled for a minute and they'll lose their inhibitions and forget that they're in a horror movie and, and be as vulnerable as possible and then she'll get killed and then all of a sudden it'll, be, it'll scare the guy, you know, the person who's not supposed to get scared. And I think there's something about that. There's something about horror movie being able to like be a, a leveling playing field of being able to frighten everyone. Oh, I love that. And I also love the idea of the tickle pinch method. Is that what you called it? Yeah, that's what I, I'm actually working on um, a feature now that I'm directing. And I think that that is going to be like a major thing in it. I think there's like when you when you do horror, you have to tickle them first because what happens when you get tickled? It's uncomfortable. You're You're laughing. You're exasperated. You're out of breath. You feel relief when it's over and you finally can sigh and then aren't, aren't you your most naked and most vulnerable to be scared? Yeah. I mean, oh, I, I love that. that. That's why I think that it's, it's, it's imperative that there's nudity in, in certain horror films because you have to, that's the, that's when people really let their guard go is when they got a boner, you know, like it's like you're watching something, <laughs> you're watching something and you're not expecting it. And like, I mean, you know, those, like, whenever you see one, like, in Florida, we used to have those palmetto bugs, those giant roaches, like, the, like, flying roaches, but they're, like, not. They're water bugs or whatever. And um, right. they love water. So you'd always be, like, naked and opening a shower curtain, like, in Psycho, and have one foot in the tub, and then eek, eek, the thing will fly up and come at you. And it, it's the worst when you're naked. You can't run out of the bathroom. There's nothing you can do. You don't have anything to hit it with. You don't, you don't have a shoe on. So I think that like being your naked is your most vulnerable. And I think that seeing that vulnerability on screen allows people to sort of get in this place where you can pinch them. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I think a lot of uh, naysayers or people outside of the genre, when they think about sort of the grand scheme of horror and you look at movies from the eighties, which was sort of the big heyday of major uh, frequent horror releases, there's a lot of derision that's thrown at them, not only for gore, but for frequent nudity. And yeah, I do think that there is there is something to be said that uh, filmmakers were using that to titillate. But you also keyed into something that speaks to the vulnerability. We need to remember that, you know, when you're looking at something allegorically, you don't get much more vulnerable than being naked. And uh, that taps into that pr- pretty succinctly, I think. Well, I think if you want to gross somebody out, like make them hungry for it. You know what I mean? It's like show them this delicious cake fresh out of the oven and then throw a rat on top of it you know oh i thought that was delicious five seconds ago what the heck and it's the same thing with you know um you know, a, a hot body babe pulling her face off or you know and then being a monster underneath or or somebody who's two two uh co-eds that are sneaking out into the woods to have sex you know and jason's coming after them it's it's when it's when you're in these moments when you're like ooh, this is kind of hot and what, what's going on and i'm on my date and i could hold their hand and this is the sexy part. And this is what we're going to do. And oh, no, a pitchfork. Right. Now, so let's take it back, you know, to your early days. Were you always into horror movies? Because I think that some people who who know you and, and your work in the world might be surprised to discover that this is something you did. Well, when I was growing up, I was afraid of them. Like I couldn't, when I walked into the VHS store, I was like, I, I used to get the creeps even walking in the horror section. Like I couldn't handle looking at the covers for so many years. Like it would be like, Ooh, I don't want to go in there, you know? And, um, I think I had that feeling through high school. I watched certain ones like exorcist and, and like, like things that were classics that I felt. I, however, I loved nightmare on Elm street and I loved, um, Chucky. Uh, uh, I loved child's play. And I love those, those things because they had a sense of humor 
And I, they were like fantasy related kind of, but the scarier real ones, like I couldn't take it, you know? And then I went right. to college and I worked at Blockbuster. And when you work at Blockbuster, you get five free movies a week, man. Let me tell you, like they go quick. And, like, <laughs> and when you're in college and you ain't got shit else to do, I just like basically gave my, put myself through film school. Um, and I got, to, I saw more, you know, more stuff, but my real horror education came when I moved to New York city the first magazine to ever write about me, I had done Bully, which is a true crime. I mean, it's not too far from right. a, a, a real life horror. Um, so, you know, I did Bully. So a lot of people who are into that kind of stuff, it's it, it's cross-referenced with horror, true crime, I believe. Like, like it's the same type of audience in a lot of ways. Um, you know, paid a lot more attention to me. And a writer at Paper Magazine um, had made me uh, one of Paper Magazine's most beautiful people. And him and I became friends, and we hung out all the time, and uh, he was a horror buff, and I would go to his house, like, pretty much, like, once a month, and he'd make chili, and we'd have some drinks, and uh, he would uh, show me a different horror movie and tell me why it was significant and why it was important and what place it had in horror history. Were there any films that he showed you that kind of rocked you at that time that like stood out or was it just the whole overall education that really stuck with you? So his name was Dennis Dermody. And what we would do is I would go over his house and we became really good friends. He, so the one that really blew my mind to answer your question was uh, Clown House. Oh, a movie with kind of a dubious distinction. Right. Because he explained to me the director, what's his name again? Uh, Victor Salva. Yeah. Victor Salva explained to me how he had gotten arrested and all of that, and then took me through Powder, which was about like a young, hairless, misunderstood boy, right. and then and then all the way to Jeepers Creepers, which was about a monster that chased a boy who for his underpants. Right. And so I was just like mind blown. And then so then we went through other series of different movies where he would uh, show me different uh, genres and different directors and follow me through everything. But I, I guess at this point, I had been a theater actor primarily until I had done Bully. I never thought I would make a movie. I thought maybe one day I would make a movie or be on TV, but I really thought that I was going to be doing musicals on Broadway. That's what I thought my life was going to be. And right. then all of a sudden, I got this movie, and I was thrust into like being a movie actor. So I was going through film school, and that basically Dennis gave me a master class in horror. Well, I mean, uh, Dennis Dermody is, is a, a very notable critic, and to to have him kind of walk you through uh, horror history as well as the ins and outs of, of the different directors and who you should be watching and, and maybe who you shouldn't, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good educator. Well, one of the reasons that he was uh, excited by uh, meeting me was because when after I was in Bully, I did Blood Feast 2. Right. That was my second movie, was with Herschel Gordon-Lewis on set with John Waters doing her, I mean, it was unbelievable, but that's such a random movie to get an opportunity to be in. Like Herschel Gordon Lewis coming out of retirement to direct one last film. Exactly. And this was a movie I definitely planned on asking you about, because I think for people who became aware of you through Mean Girls or Looking, maybe don't know about Blood Feast 2, but in the world of horror, Herschel Gordon Lewis is known uh, as the grandfather and godfather of the modern gore film. And he has a very strong distinction of being somebody who kind of defined the grindhouse generation and the drive-in generation. 
you've got people like Quentin Tarantino uh, and, and a lot of modern filmmakers who sort of worship at his feet, but to the general public, he's still sort of maybe a niche filmmaker. One of the things I loved about John Waters, I was a major John Waters fan. John Waters is the first director that I said, I love Hairspray. I love Serial Mom. I wonder who directed them while I was working at Blockbuster. Looked them up in the big Leonard Moulton huge book we had at Blockbuster. Right. Um, looked them up and saw, oh, the same director made both these films. Now let me go find his other films. So leave it to me, like almost, basically the birth of the internet time, trying to find John Waters films, which are like banned everywhere and impossible to get. I called Vidiots in Santa Monica. I'd never even been to California, but I called Vidiots in Santa Monica. I called Kim's video in New York City. I was like, it got to the point where I was, they're like, we have copies, but they're rented out. And I was begging and pleading for the people that worked at these video stores to personally take home a copy and make a copy of like, eat your makeup for me. (laughs) So I, I read all of John Waters biographies. I was obsessed. Like, and one of the great things about being fans of John being a fan is that he doesn't just stop at his own work. He'll let you know every single thing that inspired him. You know, he'll like take pictures of his bookshelves for you and like really let you get in his mind, you know, which is something that now as a, an entertainer, I try to do. I try to let people know what music I'm listening to, like what news article I read. I, I try to keep my social media as a great way of doing that, you know, but before social media, John wrote it in his books and he let us know like what movies. So he taught me about Hersha Gordon Lewis and about, the Strangler and about the 24 hour movie and, uh, and about exploitation in general, which led me to go on and read about those people. So I became a Herschel Gordon Lewis fan through him and also showed scenes from blood feast in serial mom. So there were context there for me. And um, this is r- ridiculous and insane, but I'm basically responsible for the making of blood feast too. So I was on the, tell set me of about Bully. that. I would, that, that is interesting. I was on the set of bully and I had one of those like little TVs that had the VHS in it, and um, like you know the com- the combination uh-huh. of my trailer, and I had the VHS of Divine Trash, the documentary about John Waters, in there. And so I would have like I worked a lot on that movie, so I would have like five minutes, fifteen minute break, and I'd watch fifteen minutes of the documentary, and then they'd be like, and then I press pause and run back to set or whatever. And I always have something going on in my trailer. Nowadays it's on my phone, but back in the day I always had some movie or something running. During Mean Girls, I watched almost the entire Hitchcock uh, filmography. Um, I just like get into these little things. <laughs> I just get into these little waves of where like, oh, I want to, I'm going to knock out a director or an actor. And I was doing John Waters. And so, so this guy, Boyd Ford, who wrote Blood Feast 2, uh, was walking past my trailer. His job on Bully was to be Brad Renfro's Wrangler, basically babysitter. And he walked past and he goes, oh, Wow. Oh, look at that. That's Blood Feast. That's Herschel Gordon-Lewis. And I said, yeah. And he's like, you know, he lives here in Fort Lauderdale. And I said, yeah, I heard that. And he goes, I wonder what he's doing right now. And so he walked back to the trailer, unbeknownst to me, with the produ- with, with some other producers on the film. And he was like, uh, hey, what's Herschel Gordon-Lewis doing now? W- wouldn't it be funny if he did a Blood Feast too? Do you think we could get him to do it? I bet you I could write it. And then it just happened in the trailer next to me. And so they made the movie happen and they got John Waters to agree and they called me and they said, Hey Danny, you're kind of responsible for this. So we can't make any promises to you, but we want to make an offer to you. We can't pay you. We can't fly you out and we can't really put you up. (laughs) They were like, but if you want to fly yourself 
to New Orleans, um, we could we could definitely make you meet John Waters, and you'll probably be in the movie with him. Wow. I mean, uh, what the fuck? So I just got my shit together. I bought my own flight. They found I could sleep on the floor of one of the like lighting guys' hotel rooms or something. Or somebody was leaving for the weekend and I could have their bed for like, I don't even know. I remember sleeping for like eight hours or something or like six hours or four, whatever. Don't remember where I was like in, 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 a, in someone's room. And, um, but I got there and I showed up and immediately they just walked me up to John and he goes, wow, Daniel, it's so nice to meet you. I'm such a huge fan of yours and bully. And I almost died. <laughs> I almost died. <laughs> And then they, then they were, he was like, would you be in the scene with me tomorrow? And I was like, yes. And then John and I wrote the scene together. And then we performed it. And we sat there. Our scene was at a table together. So they, we just sat at a table and basically had a front row seat to watch Herschel Gordon-Lewis direct the rest of the day. I mean, it was, like, really funny. Like, they did one scene where this girl was walking past the camera and her heels were like, click, clop, click, clop, clop. And then he was like, cut. That was perfect. And we're laughing because it was like not, you know? Like... It was incredible. And John let me ask him basically any question I ever wanted to ask him ever. And I got to sit with my hero and basically ask him everything. And we became friendly. And I mean, to this day, um, you know, when we see each other, it's all love. I love that. And I love, yeah, I mean, honestly, what you described, the idea of flying yourself somewhere, sleeping on the floor is is not an unknown, an unheard of story in the world of no budget indie horror. And that's been the story of so many people who have made you know, these kind of movies, whether it be a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie or the Toxic Avenger or whatever. And I knew that. I knew it was a dollar in a dream. It, I was living my dreamland fantasy doing that, you know? Like, I was like, this is my chance to make this kind of thing. When will I get that opportunity? Exactly. But this story and just hearing the excitement in your voice, the chance that you got to go do this and spend the day with John Waters and, and do a scene together, that in itself was the payment for that kid who was calling every video store across creation, trying to track down, eat your makeup. Like Indeed. you, you spend the money, but you never spend the well, memory. You know, so that's that kind sacrifice of like, is doing something people won't do. So you could do something people can't do. Nobody's going to get the opportunity to be a scene, in a scene with John Waters in a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. Are you freaking kidding that you write with John, with your hero? Like no one gets to do that, but no one's also going to fly themselves out, put themselves up you know, be studying John in the trailer, like, you know what I mean? Like putting the pieces together. That's wild. When was the last time you watched Blood Feast 2? Have you, have oh, you seen it God, recently? No, I mean, no. <laughs> 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 not to mention that I know almost everybody in that movie from different movies and different projects we worked on. And it's not, it's just like a dusty movie with a lot of memories for me, but I am really happy that people enjoy it. So Earlier, just to, to, to kind of wind back the clock a bit, you had mentioned that you always thought that you would, would take your, your acting to the stage. When, when in your life did you know acting was for you? Was this like something from an early age uh, or, you know, was there a turning point? I always wanted to do it. I could talk before I was out of diapers and I could walk. I, was, I could talk at a very young age. You see those kids like on America's Funniest Videos that are like saying sentences and stuff and you're like, damn. Or, like, that have, like, Instagram accounts. Like, I was a kid like that. Um, the reason is my grandfather, um, when my grandfather uh, came from Italy, he wanted to move on, on um, to the street in Brooklyn. And they're like, we don't want a greasy Italian like you living on this block. And he was like, you son of a bitch. One a day, <laughs> I'm going to own the whole block. And he frigging did. He had 12 
13 kids, 13 kids, and they all bought a house on that block. And then their kids grew up and bought houses on that block. And then when my parents got together, my dad's parents and his brother also bought houses on that block. So pretty soon we owned the whole block pretty much. And when I was, when I was the first grandkid out of all those cousins, that generation. So when I learned my ABCs, I would do what I call the coffee table circuit. I'd go from like table to table to table, like in everybody's living room. And I, I, I was entertaining from like the time I'm born, like I, literally like a child actor without a stage. And um, then when I like, I kept wanting it. In second grade, I did a commercial. I made my mom take me to an agent who got me a booking, and then I booked the commercial. But then it was too much for my parents, and she was like, you know what? When you go to college, you do this, but I'll support you and everything else. I did it all throughout school, you know, loved it, um, was an extra in a few movies when I was in my teens, and I could finally get a friend with a car to drive me to go do that. Um, always tried to get into stuff. I went to college for it. And then after, like, I left college to do theater. Right. And it was when you were looking to do theater that you booked Bully. Right. I was doing theater in South Florida. I had been doing, I've been, I earned my equity card. And I was um, in a play where this guy who was in the play with me, his um, partner was a drag queen, like a big drag queen, is a big drag queen in uh, South Florida. And um, she used to host, like, a talent competition. And so I went and I won one night and I kept preparing numbers and skits and I'd go and win because most people didn't even know there was a talent show. It was like a Monday night thing. And like, but the prize was a hundred bucks and if I, and my rent was 400. So if I won every week, one month, I could pay my rent. Um, right. So I was out there one night and they were scouting locations for the movie and I met the casting director and the casting director, there, there was, there was a SAG strike at the time. So they're having a hard time filling my role. And I looked exactly like the guy. And I was already equity, so it was easy for them to transfer me to SAG. And she had me come in and audition. It's a, it's a way longer story, um, but um, I, I got the part there out of you know out of Fort Lauderdale. And it's wild. So your first movie is with Larry Clark, who is is a pretty renowned cult filmmaker of his own. And did, were you aware of him before? Um, before more than movie? aware. I didn't know his name, but I uh, like very few movies that I see more than once in the theaters, and kids just like sang it just like sang to me like i saw the the trailer for it on mtv and i'm like what is this and then i saw like a, a uh, something in the newspaper and i'm like what the heck is this this looks so interesting and then i went to go see it in the theater and i was gagged especially because i saw like a gay kid and i saw like you know there's kids acting like kids i knew you know and i took back like eight friends to go see it i'd be like do you want to see this amazing movie let's go let's go and i kept seeing it over and over again and quoting it and so I was a super fan of that movie. So when I met Larry, I kind of freaked out on him and super fan geeked all over him. And he hated my guts. And the casting director sort of coached me to like come in as the character and not talk as me and, you know, um, just sort of like basically straight butch up or you're in right. trouble. Oh, what a hard lesson, uh, crash course in the world of, of, of film that way. Mm. In so many ways. I mean, that movie was shrouded in so much adventure and controversy. They were also wild, everyone on the set. And like, I'm from a theater background where we sweep the stage and we're the lead and we have pride in what we do. And it's literally like, almost like the British version of what we think of as theatrical people who are like, it's a, it's a noble profession. And these are just like starlet people that want to be famous or that have gifts, but also have severe problems. I mean, it was a very problematic cast, you know, and 
like I the first day of shooting was canceled because Brad stole a boat and ended up in jail. I'm like, oh my god, like it was this push pull of like big up, like I got a movie. Oh, the movie's gonna be canceled. Oh, you're back in the movie. Oh, you know, like just all kinds of shit, like back and forth. Um, it was a shaky uh, emotional experience to make that film. And I'm I'm wondering too for someone who you know you worked at a video store, you loved movies. This is your first movie. Yeah, in for a, a... I, I worked at a movie theater in Fort Lauderdale that did all the like indie cinema theaters, and a bully premiered there. In Fort Lauderdale. Oh, that a Fort Lauderdale that's because cool. like, it's shot in Fort Lauderdale, so they had a lot of crew that wanted to see it, but they weren't going to like fly out to you know California. So they do that sometimes. They have like a local premiere for all the people that worked on where you filmed it, and I literally worked concession like at that theater like and then like two years later was premiering my first film there well that's cool that's an awesome homecoming kind of story right yeah there. i got fired it was really cool to walk past my boss and be like excuse me you're going in there <laughs> but i have to ask you know here's your first movie it, it's a tumultuous set as someone who worked in a movie theater worked at a video store kind of was worshiping at the altar of movies because it, it was sort of a tricky behind the scenes was there any disillusionment or did you just realize okay i have to sort of readjust my expectations for this this art i was so green i was just really green like i just remember like on my like i didn't do drugs back then i had a period of drugs in my life that wasn't it and like i got a nosebleed on my first day on the set just from like sheer nerves it was just so it was very like i didn't want to fuck up i didn't want to get fired you know like, I, I, I was like, they, surely they made a mistake hiring me, you know? Um, I was very, like, uh, the self-esteem and the confidence. I'm known now as, like, this body confident, like, I'm a very confident guy. I was not that then. So, I mean, what a journey, though. And, and I love that your first movie is with Larry Clark. And then your second movie is with Herschel Gordon-Lewis. So, I mean, like, that's... Actually, the-, the producer, Jackie Morgan, is responsible for this. So Jackie Morgan was one of the producers on Bully. And he was leaving Bully after Bully was over to go make this other movie that was a Christian football film called Hometown Legend. And he, and he oh. was taking the craft service lady with, with him. And she was like, hey, Danny, psst, like I read the script and I'm going to go do this movie and you're right for it. Maybe you should take it. But don't say I said anything, but, you know, whatever. And let me know what part it is. And then when I tell him what I thought of it, I'll be like, hey, Danny should play that part. She had my back. I'm still in touch with her, Lisa. She's awesome. So you did you did a Christian football movie between Larry Clark and her. <laughs> yeah, Gordon with Lacey Chabert and Terry O'Quinn. What's wild about that is that's kind of a John Waters move because when John Waters made Hairspray, people were sort of like, why is he doing a family film? And he's like, well, after doing all this sort of like punk rock stuff, what's the most outrageous thing I can do? This. And sort of like, I just love the idea that in between these two... I was playing a handsome football player, okay? And in like... In Bully, I was supposed to be playing grody and sweaty and whatever. And then um, uh, Kelly Gardner, who plays Heather Swallers in Bully with the blue hair, she was she's gorgeous. And she was going – was, she was going to play my girlfriend. I'm like, what the hell? Of course I'm going to go do this movie. I just needed some, like, diversity on tape or whatever, you know? Right. Uh, but <laughs> I, but I, I really – I tell you, to go back to horror in general, instead of just talking about, like, like when, when I was – meeting with Dennis and going through like the Dennis Dermody film school in his living room. Like I wanted nothing more than to do a horror movie then to like impress him and like please him. I couldn't wait to get an opportunity to do a horror movie. So, um, that uh, is when 
I did uh, when I did Mean Girls, the first offer I got after that was a horror movie, and I said yes. And it was Crew World with Eddie Furlong. And uh, did you ever hear from Dennis about that movie or no? No, I don't think. I mean, like, Dennis and I's friendship sort of, uh, a lot of friendships of mine changed when I moved out of New York. Dennis is like one of those old school New Yorkers. Like, I never would, like, make plans with Dennis. I would come by, I would walk past his apartment and I would, like, knock on the door and be like, hey, what's up? And he'd either be like, he'd either be like, come up or come by next week, you know? It's a very New York thing to just like, sort of run into people and make plans. It was so like when I moved to L.A., I was actually trying to like start an entirely new life in a lot of ways. Not that I was abandoning someone like Dennis, but I was literally abandoning myself and I was trying not I didn't want to make too many friends. I didn't want people to know I was gay in L.A. I didn't I wanted to like um, be something I wasn't. I was like, I'm going to be a star now. I want to come out here and. And do bigger things now that I made a big movie. And so as soon as I made Mean Girls, I thought I was going to have all these opportunities that let's say somebody else, like a my competition at the time, which might have been Jonah Hill or uh, like John Hader, you know, were the ones who were getting the roles that I was up for. I wanted to, that, right. I was like, it's because they, you know, they think I'm gay or whatever. So I didn't go backwards, you know, and I wasn't like, tr- like, I was just trying to do things that were like. I, I, I like didn't look back and De- and you know I tried to keep in touch with Dennis via email and phone calls and stuff like that but it's not the same when we didn't have our little powwow I actually miss him a lot and I'm, I'm interested too because you talked about how you wanted to kind of steer away from the gay conversation and I know you've you've talked about this in a bigger broader sense in, in some other interviews and is just in relation to your career but that had to be kind of a tricky time for you as well, because you're not only avoiding these roles, but you would be avoiding part of yourself. I, yeah, I imagine probably the that... roles that I'd be the best at. Like I just, it wasn't a shame thing. I wasn't shamed. I was always proud of who I was. I was, I was afraid. I was fear. I was in fear, you know, like I understand, I, I can't possibly comprehend anyone else's experience or compare my experience to horrible things. But there's a lot of like horrible narratives in life, like race related or religion related or sexuality related that people go through that this is this is along the lines with. Like when you were living in fear of losing like your money and your life and your your livelihood and your passion and all the shit that I worked for just because of like who I want to like make out with, you know. Right. Then I was like, well, so it's a- I won't make out. I didn't think of it as love. I was also young. I was like, I won't hook up and I won't make out and I won't date and that's it. Like I'll give that up for this. This is more important to me right now. But then I wasn't living my life and probably wasn't even doing good in my art because the best I ever like write is after I get a blowjob. (laughs) (laughs) Was there what I know that you you've talked about how there was sort of a turning point where you looked back at Damien from Mean Girls and that helped kind of inspire you to sort of confront yourself. But was there a point when you were going out for auditions or whatever where you were just like, no, this is it. This far is, you know, this this is far enough. I need to sort of embrace me to embrace everything, the artist, um, to embrace the actually, person. Actually, I, I didn't quit acting. I didn't make like an Amanda Bynes announcement. I just sent it. But I sort of like, I fired, I went through this period where I was working on a documentary on this subject who was funding the documentary herself. And she... Basically, in my opinion, all she ever wanted to do was like film herself. So she'd like hire a director, film herself. And then when that person was like, can we make a movie? Can we make a movie? She'd be like, you're fired. And then hire a new director. And she did it her whole life. She's got an amazing life with all this footage. 
but the movie wasn't really going anywhere, but I didn't realize that. But I decided that I was going to get in Hollywood a different way again and basically take a break from all this bullshit and not deal with anything. And I fired my agent. I, my, I fired my manager. I fired my publicist. I fired my accountant. I took my, all, my, all that information off of IMDb and left my phone number there. And then I went to go make a movie, a documentary in Detroit. And like a year later, I got a call from my now manager, Gary Ostall, who was like, dude, I'm like a huge fan of yours. And I was wondering what you were up to. And it can't even be possible that you don't have a manager. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're like one of the most talented people out there. Like, can I talk to you? And I went and met with him and we just clicked. I mean, he's one of my best friends now. And like, he brought me back kind of a little bit. It's not like I was going to stay out forever, but I was like, you know what? I get an offers every once in a while. Someone's going to call that number and give me an offer. Right. Like, I'll just wait for the offer, you know? Um, and instead, I got an offer for uh, um, to workshop a Broadway musical, and I went to go do that in New York. And, and around what time was this? This like, was like right before in, I came in... out. I started working on the musical. This is like 2013. And then um, I go to New York, and I was like, then the 10th anniversary of Mean Girls happened, and I started getting all this, e- all this like, newfound interest in Mean Girls, not only just like the movie, but like the history of it, you know, because the movie's three years old. It's like, oh, that movie's three years old. Um, what's next? And the movie's six years old. And it's like, yeah, that was funny. But like, now it's like, girl, like, get over it. But then it's like 10 years old. And it's like, oh, this shit's a classic. And, and it makes you <laughs> and the people who it came out 10 years ago were in high school. And it's even more nostalgic for them. And it's like, the gen- you know, it's like all the generation that's now writing for magazines. So they're all like, writing all these things and pretty soon it was like if any of us would fart it would make front page news you know like i ran into like Lindsay at a restaurant and we took a selfie together and it ended up on the times of india and then on like the cover of like it was just ridiculous so it's like i was like this is a great time for me to come out and it have some cultural reference to it but now i just have to think about how you know and my stomach was turning and my family had mixed reviews they were like don't do it you're gonna hurt your career and they were like, we love you, but, you know, and we accept you, but why does everybody have to know? Like, you know, they just, everyone just didn't know. My agents, you know, before that I had fired were like, don't ever do it. So it's like, well, now what do I do? And so I like, I got a letter from someone and it said, I don't know if you're gay or not, but it doesn't matter. And I thought about how much it did matter. And then he said, but when I was in eighth grade, I was beat up for being chubby and tortured for being a sissy. And then your movie came out and in ninth grade on the first day of my freshman year, the popular senior girls walked up to me and said, you're like Damien, come sit with us. And he was like, and thank you so much for just like giving me an identity in media that I could look at and identify with and feel comfortable saying, yeah, that's like me. And it it just made me have an identity. And I, I was balling, man. I just was like, wow. Like, I wish I had something like that when I was 16. So I, I got together with some friends and, came up with the idea to write a letter to Damien um, to just thank Damien for what he's done for all these guys and girls who like felt like they didn't belong and then saw some queer kid just be fine without anyone really bothering him or making fun of him and he didn't fear for his life every day like they were and he didn't have to hide who he was. And But, you know, he could just be normal and it was like, wow. And it actually created a new normal, I think, for queer teen culture because it didn't really have a culture. And now... Right. So many people come up to me, so many people, I can't even count, that say, when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's what I'll be like. And that helped my friends be like, did you see Mean Girls? You're like a Damien. 
you know? And then I realized that maybe that's kind of how I always was in general. My high school best friend, Teresa, told me last week, yesterday was my birthday, um, the day before yesterday. And she called me and she was like, her daughter, Zaley, who is only, I think, 11 uh, or 12, was like, I really want, can I have any boyfriends? Am I allowed to have a boyfriend, mom? She said, go find yourself your own Danny, you know? <laughs> And I think for a lot of kids, they were able to, their moms were able, their girls were allowed to have a Damien around and Damien's were allowed to come over for dinner more. And like, you know, I had some girl from Texas say that like her, she was struggling with going to church on Sunday and then her best friend being gay. And then her, she'd be like, mom, mama, be quiet. He's a Damien, you know, leave him alone. He could stay leap over. And like these, some gay kids were allowed to have more access. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And that really struck me a lot. And you know, the woman that I was working for at the documentary, she told me, she taught me a lesson about legacy and what you leave behind. And I started thinking about what a legacy this was and it wasn't lost on me and how important that is and, and how powerful it is and what I could do with it if I use it correctly. Like it's a huge me- megaphone. If, if, if me and Lindsay Lohan at a restaurant matter so much, then what does it matter when I knock on my congressman's door and talk about rights for LGBTQ youth or or homelessness, or um, HIV stigma. I mean, if if, they'll, if if it matters so much what my favorite color is to Cosmo, what's it going to matter when I'm asking someone to give some money to Gladder, the Trevor Project? So I really started using that voice for those things, especially since it aligned with my own personal journey and story. I was the kind of kid that needed a Trevor Project. I am the kind of queer that needs land illegal fighting for them. So I, I had to put myself in a position where I could do those things now, you know? And ironically, I started taking control of my whole life. I was like, you know what? When 2000, like when the five-year anniversary of Mean Girls came out, they did all these Where Are They Nows, and it was horrible. They basically made it sound like I quit acting because they didn't have my current information or a current picture. And I was like, I'm not going to let that happen at 10th anniversary. I already know that that's coming. So I, for, for the six months before the 10th anniversary, I took all these photo shoots with my beard as a man, with all these photographers and collaborated on Instagrams and it led to me getting a modeling contract, by the way, but that's beside the story. I started doing all of that. And then I was hanging out with my friend and she was like, you know, um, are you watching looking? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to watch looking. And she's like, why? And she, I'm like, cause I, they just don't put guys like me on shows like that. And it, I don't feel like my story is being told. She was like, well, why don't you be the guy like you on that show? And she's a casting director, Lori Malkin in New York. And I'm like, Lori, you're a casting director. You know it doesn't work this way. Like, if it worked this way, I'd be on American Horror Story. That's, like, the show I want to be on, you know? I was like, I wouldn't, like, if I could do whatever I want, you know? And I was like, um, she was like, I don't know. I'm just about manifesting my own destiny these days. And she kind of got in my head. And I went home and looked up who the casting director was. And it was Carmen Cuba who discovered me in that club at that talent show for Bully. Wow. That's, so that, you want to talk about <laughs> Cosmic right, right there. I mean, especially when the conversation at hand was manifesting your own destiny. So I wrote Carmen a little Facebook and I said, hey, Carmen, how are you? I said, um, I really liked looking, even though I didn't seen it yet, a little lie. But I, I did, I think, binge watch it before I messaged her. And I was like, um, I was like, if you ever need a sexy bear, here are some photos. And I had taken the photos for the past six months. So she goes, oh, you never know. Turns out that this, the interior discussion on the show was that they needed someone who was more cuddly. And... Carmen was like, what about Danny? And they were like, okay. And then they just asked me to breakfast and offered me the part. That's amazing. It was unbelievable. I did have to do a screen test for HBO's executives. But other than that, they just were so polite and like, 
basically offered me the part. What I like too about this journey is is you uh, you were you joined the cast of Looking in 2015, which is the year after the 10th anniversary of Mean Girls, and you just spoke very eloquently about your journey with the character of Damien, about kind of coming back around and realizing how impactful that character is, and that helped you also see what you wanted to do and what impact you wanted to have. And then this, the role the next year after you make these, these life decisions furthers that conversation, because if I'm not mistaken, your character of Eddie is the first HIV positive character on a, on a show ever. No, uh, within seven years, here's why, within seven here's years. why that's fascinating. And why this all really started to like, unlike, you know, people are like, um, I feel like Jim Carrey right now because like that dude's like the you know like you know when you like become an actor and then you just become woke one day like yeah, like <laughs> there's some crazy shit starts happening around you but this character right like um ever since we found out about HIV um every year the the infections went down ever since day one they've gone down every year which I didn't really know that statistic but. When they stopped telling stories on television, the last character was Gloria Rubin on ER. After her storyline ended, seven years went by without an HIV storyline on television. And every single year that happened, the infections went up. So they were like, ho, 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 hold on a second. And GLAAD and and Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation underwrote it. Um, They wrote the media playbook on HIV and AIDS, which Ross Murray over at GLAAD media trained me for to be the celebrity that delivers that stuff to MSNBC and say, basically it was to all the press saying these, this is the current situation for HIV and AIDS in the U S and the world. And this is how you handle the dialogue. You know, this is what we say, you know, we don't say HIV virus because the V means virus. Like, you know what I mean? There was like little, little details and things that they needed to learn how to handle it in the media. So I became media trained and so well versed on this right out of the gate. And once I read that book, once I knew the statistics that like one in three gay men have never been tested, you know, that like 50% of African-American men in our lifetime are going to probably be gay ones are going to be HIV positive. Like that's, those are too much. So then I started freaking out and I was like, how could I help this? What could I do? And, you know, that's when I started thinking about legacy work too. It's like how important this is that I'm doing this role. Which is why, like, which is where stand-up comes in. And isn't this the craziest thing? But with stand-up, I could say anything I want. And I say a lot of stuff like this in my show. And people have to listen to it in, in the mix of all the jokes. And I'm able to communicate what I want to do out there. And I don't have to listen to anybody. And I could wait around for the next movie or television role that I think has legacy potential. I don't want to just do movies to pay my rent anymore, which... I'm guilty of in the past sometimes like, and I, I, like, and we all are, you know, we sit around and then we get one movie every two years and it's like, Oh shit, I got to take it, whatever it is. Take get me, get me, get me. But I also learned a couple <laughs> of lessons where I've been on certain movies that I didn't really want to be on. And a casting director would be like, damn, too bad you weren't here. You were my first choice for blank. And it's a career changing role. So you really, at some point have to be willing to starve and have to be willing to risk it all. And have to be willing to fly yourself out to new Orleans and do whatever it is to make sure that your legacy is what you really want it to be. Like, and so I want to do impactful stuff. And I'm not saying I want to do something goofy and funny. Like I'd love to be in a dude wears my car, but I think that those things or like a crazy horror. Right. But just like I said in the beginning of our conversation, those movies are just as cathartic and important. 
Like they really do. Uh, they, in a strange way, they heal. That's why there's a fan base for them. People love to see that kind of stuff. Sometimes making them see all the horror and gore and everything else and desensitizing them kind of makes them be able to handle our news, which is more horrible and gory and everything else because it's real. Well, it's true. And you know what happens is every so often a horror movie kind of attracts the attention of, of the cultural elite, if you will, whatever that means. And there's there's a new article that comes out. It's a it's like every five years we see this article and everyone in the horror community kind of rolls their eyes. And that article always proclaims horror is back. But what we know is that horror never really went anywhere because horror is always a reflection of our times. It's like a dark lens that we hold up to society and culture for reasons of critique or release or catharsis. And what you're you're speaking of is the you know the the people who are attracted to these movies not only like these movies for the entertainment, but because sometimes it's it's what they have to escape and it's what they have to purge the fear of the real world, the fear of the news, the anxiety of the news. Because if you can roll that up into a monster and have it go away in ninety minutes, there's something important about that. So. Yeah, these movies are impactful, and I think that you really hit the nail on the head. We these genres persist because they're just as important. Sometimes even more so because they can use the fantastic to steer us towards conversations that maybe we don't want to have yet. I think that's fair, definitely. So I I just think that what you have been doing has been really great because it's sort of like you said you you had an awakening, and from that moment you've just been full steam ahead. It's like you took that turn and you never looked back and and now you are you're you're raising your voice and fighting for for people who maybe need help to raise their it's voice. It's even it's even interesting right now my new podcast is Yas Jesus which is like so I went to conversion therapy and my co-host used to be a televangelist on TVN and got kicked out from his show when they found out he was gay. And so we're two sinners and we basically say like we love God but we also suck dick. Like we're very like we're very open about how we speak about things. We're very open how we talk, <laughs> and I think that there's a place right now. This is like another marginalized community, like of, of you know most of our homeless youth are people who were kicked out because their religious parents, quote unquote, like didn't like the way that they are. I'm just trying to find ways that I can speak to the most marginalized per- part of myself and my psyche that needed to hear it myself. You know, there's like a young version of me out there, right, that just is starving to hear someone say it's okay. It's okay to be gay and, and, and love God. It's okay to be gay and, and, you know, it's okay to be a Christian and be in horror movies. That's a whole other subject too. You know, like how could I bounce from one thing to another and do that kind of a thing? I saw Marsha Gay Harden on Oprah <laughs> interview Ellen Burstyn. And it was on the Oprah anniversary DVD and it was Oscar winners interviewing Oscar winners. And Marsha Gay Harden said to Ellen Burstyn, like, how do you do horror? Like, I don't know how you do it. Like, because my faith, like, I couldn't deal with the occult. My faith is too strong. And Ellen Burson was like, no, 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 my dear. You have to have strong faith when you deal with stuff of the occult because you bring attention of all these unwanted spirits and things. And you need to be strong in order to do it. And I saw Marsha Gay Harden's eyes be like, ding. And what do you know? She's in the fog. She's in this. She's in the... Now she's doing all these, like, horror movies, you know? Right. Oh, my gosh. So Ellen Burstyn was the epiphany Marsha Gay Harden needed. And is this maybe the queerest thing that we've ever talked about? <laughs> maybe. But if you, if you want to talk about, a, you want to talk about a, a, fag, a faggotry horror moment, you need to go look at the Oprah anniversary DVD and look and watch that scene. 
And you will see in Marsha Gay Harden's eyes why she does horror now. I love that. I also love that it also speaks to the fact that we as gay men often are uh, led led by the actresses that we admire. There is something I've always found interesting about that, the, uh, the attraction from their journeys, because I think it reflects a lot of our own. You know, we, we project ourselves into these powerful women because for years in cinema, we didn't have representation. Well, and because also oh, to prove, like, I felt like even doing a spin in your grave, I was going to be like, Oh yeah. Watch what a gay guy can do. Like I can go in there and play like a bat, like a backwards, like, you know, backwoods, like rapist. Were you familiar with the original I spit on your grave when you took that part? Um, I had known about it through like horror trailer comp- uh, compilations and things like that. I had, I'd known all the gags. I hadn't seen the whole film. I rented it and I I had to lower it so low because I thought that people were going to call the police. And I, I was like living in a house, not even an apartment. And I was like, I think my neighbors are going to think that someone's dying in here. Like, it's just fully <laughs> screaming the whole movie. It was horrible. Um, I actually enjoyed it, though, because Mayor Zarki, who wrote that film, told the true origin of the movie, as you obviously probably know, and a lot of our li- your listeners probably know, is that it was, it was also called Day of the Woman. That was the original right. title. And the reason is, is that Mayor Zarki was driving um, past uh, Central Park and some woman came out who was just raped and was bleeding and she fell in the hood of his car like, help me, help me. And he was like, oh my God. And he took her in the car and he drove her to the police station and people were like, eh, what do you want us to do about it? They just were like, not helping her. Like, and he couldn't believe it. And so he wanted to write a movie where that happens to a woman and she's able to take revenge so all the women who were never able to get revenge could watch that movie and have a cathartic experience. That being the origin of the film, it lets you really go dark because you want to be as gross as you can. So this way, the satisfaction is even deeper if you're supplying some sort of catharticism for someone who's been through trauma. Yeah, and it's interesting because the original film has very uh, much been remarked upon in academic circles. I mean, there are those who view it as a very feminist piece and there are those who who don't. But what I think is really important about the work is it sparks the discussion. Like I I know that um queer queer writer BJ Colangelo has has spoken out about this movie uh and and this dialogue on a number of occasions and has prompted modern people to talk about it. It's it's written about in Carol Clover's uh book Blood Sex and Chainsaws. I think that um, it's rare to have a horror movie that's considered such a drive-in um, sleaze when it comes out actually lead to such academic discussion. So it's really cool, too, to see that spirit kind of carried on. Well, it's also a very, um, it's a hero of censorship in a lot of ways, too, because when they converted uh, the Betamax videos over, um England was basically like, there's 10 video nasties that we're not going to let be converted to British. And that was listed on the list as one of the movies that that the UK was not allowed to have. And so then it became like a famous movie that they would like copy and be like, I got a copy of it. And, you know, it was like a banned movie. And so it was really popular over there as well. Now, because we were talking about powerful actresses and we're discussing the original film, there's a little bit of trivia that I think that you might be interested in. And and maybe, you know, but you know, that famous cover art for the original film that when it was the day of the woman with you see the woman's back. Allegedly, that is Demi Moore in an early modeling job. Really? That's I didn't even know that one. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because Camille Keaton, who's the star of the original movie, has has verified that it's not her on the cover. 
And there is a persistent rumor that it was uh, Demi Moore in a early modeling job post for the, the cover of the VHS and poster art. Um, you know, what's funny is that like whenever you like, I guess somewhere I have like this catalog in my head of, of something I would say to whatever celebrity if I met them, because like living in um, uh, Hollywood, you know, you meet people all the time, you end up working with them. And it's like, what would be your what would you say to them? Because I always think there's some sort of Groundhog Day version of the, something that you could say to somebody that all of a sudden then you become friends or colleagues or whatever. So, right. so to me more, that's a way better one for me to bring up to her than the one I had for her, which was I used my my senior graduating photo to audition for Striptease. <laughs> oh, yeah, Striptease was shot in Florida, too. Yeah, so, so I used like my sample photos because my parents didn't even buy, spring for the photos. I cut one of my samples out, which was me in a tuxedo with my hair slicked back and a glitter background. And I slipped it under the door at my phone number on the back to the casting office in Miami. And did you did you get a I'm call? I'm still waiting. <laughs> well, maybe maybe for striptease, uh, the the Redux when they bring it back for Netflix. That's the oh, dream. I'm known, I'm known to get into a remake. <laughs> you know, a lot <laughs> of people really upset that a Spit in Your Grave was remade. I was at um, the New Beverly, which is one of my favorite places in the world, um, and I was at the New Beverly Cinema, and they were doing a night of exploitation films, and in between. Or after they were showing a special, like thirty minutes of exploitation trailers, like in, it was all a night of exploitation trailers in decade chronological order. It was epic, and it was basically like every exploitation movie that ever existed in order by decade. And I think like I took a break, I guess, to like go smoke a joint or something around the seventies because I know most of those anyway. And I was like, "Oh, do you have I spit on your grave in there?" Because the guy came out who made them. And he was like, you know, he was out taking a break from like, I guess, wedding in the booth. And he's like, do you know that they're remaking it? And I said, yeah, actually, I'm in the remake. And he he only had one drag of his cigarette and threw it on the ground and ran inside and slammed the door of the New Beverly. Oh, no. I was like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> I mean, some people have some really strong feelings about it. Um, I See, I don't like the word remake ever because remake implies that you're replacing it. I'm imagining it's like, let's make 50 of the same things. Like look at Romeo and Juliet. Like I want to see things reimagined by different people and stories told over and over and over again, especially really good ones. Like everyone was so up in arms about the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, which I didn't like obviously as much as I really liked the originals, but I was like more Nightmare on Elm Street. Let's do it. You know, like, right. Like I'm always game for uh, another version. Well, and it does, it comes up and it's a frequent debate. When remakes happen, people get real mad. And then you hear, you know, of course, across the internet, that sort of toxic response of, Oh, they're ruining my childhood. But the answer is no, they're not because they're keeping it alive. Exactly. Because it, it, it inspires conversations and it also may lead someone to discover the original that you love so much, but also film is a forever medium. And so if you love the original Evil Dead, it's always going to be there. And if you happen to love the 2013 Evil Dead, go for it because that's there now forever too. And I think that's a really good insight because it, it, it also these movies provide a history and provide a culture that can lead more people and provide opportunities. Like, you know, you you discovered a lot about the history of I Spit on Your Grave because you were in the remake of I Spit on Your Grave. Maybe you would have never gone down that journey if not. I might not. I definitely wouldn't have known as much as I know. Yeah. You know, but I, I really feel like, um, and, and psychologically for me as an actor, I didn't want to do it, man. I turned it down like twice. But then I kept thinking, like, what's the most opposite I can get of Damien, you know? Like, right. Like, as far as I can go to the other direction. Um, 
And I thought that it would make a, a bigger impact, but whatever, you know, keep I keep plugging away, <laughs> figure out something else to do. Maybe next time I'll do everything standing on my hands, whatever. <laughs> so all of these, all of these different projects that we've discussed, your history with horror, your history in movies, your history with activism. Uh, and I know that you stay pretty busy. Uh, one of the things that you recently did that I know that a lot of Dead for Filth listeners probably saw and are very interested in is you got to finally be a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race, not just a guest judge, but on the Snatch Game episode. Yes, it was uh, epic. I had an epic year with uh, World of Wonder. I also was on the Vivian show from, uh, I mean, it was really great. I absolutely loved it. Um, doing Drag Race was literally a dream come true. And the funny thing is, is you've been connected with World of Wonder since Party Monster, right? right. Yeah, that was when I, my first introduction to them. I met all of them on that movie. Uh, Randy and Fenton, who are, the, who are World of Wonder, uh, they uh, they directed Party Monster. And um, so when I came out to Los Angeles, they were the only real people I knew out here. And they were, you know, queer and my family. And, you know, I have to say one thing about them for as outwardly, unabashedly, unashamedly gay as they've always have been. They always respected my privacy when they knew that I was closeted and nervous and everything else and knew that it would be on my own time and treated me well. So they maintained the safe space as, as loud as they are. They were a safe space for me. Well, it's good to have those allies who understand that we all do this in our own time. And I think that it's it's important just to have that visibility in the world and, and words like this in the world to know that if you're going through it, you get to choose and you get to tell your story. And I think a lot of the work that you do helps other people understand that as well. I'm just making up for lost time. Uh, so I have to ask being on... Well, I, well what I want to ask, because rarely do I get to be on a conversation with someone else who has been a judge of a drag show. Cause I was a guest judge on Dragula. You've been on drag race. And I don't know that viewers understand what kind of a daunting job it is. Uh, well, I, the daunting part for me was like, when I watch the show, I have a very clear and concise uh, opinion and critique. But when you see the show, you don't even know their names. I'd like, and snatch game, we only saw their characters. We didn't know who they were. You know, or like, so it's hard to figure out like what was going on. You didn't, we didn't know nothing about them. Right. And, and it is it's like, also, I think too, when you're faced with someone in person without that buffer of, of TV, there is something just magical about what drag queens bring, period. And when, you know, for me, when I was judging Dragula, watching everybody, I was like, this is so hard to even offer critique because it feels to me like everyone's just bringing it. Yeah, that's when you really got to get into the nitty gritty. I always find some kind of note because I think that if you can't find a note, then you're not really being helpful. So I'm always trying to dig right in there and be like, and I would maybe not wear those shirts. Like whatever it is, you just got to figure out something to tell them because uh, like one of the things I hated about learning acting and early on in my career is everyone would be like, great job. And that's what I would get. I'd be like, you're great. Right. You were so funny. But I'd be like, tell me what to do better. There's got to be something. Like, I needed to grow, you know? So I needed to go to a place, like my school, where, like, everybody was funny and everybody was talented. So it was like, I could be critiqued harder, you know? And yeah. Until I went to Hollywood, where they just fucking, you know... Just... Oh, yeah, people tell you. No, I know. And that's when I judged uh, on Dragula, too. I did offer critique as well. But there is that moment where you're just like, well, this is this is real. The, there's a reason these people are on TV. Because My harshest they, they critiques, do they cut out of the show. Even. <laughs> well, I won't ask you to reveal them here. Instead, I'll ask the softball question that I'm sure others have already asked you. But if you were competing in the Snatch Game, who would your character be? I would do Eureka O'Hara. 
Really? That's a, cool, that's a good choice. <laughs> Ugh, I, that's amazing. Danny, so you mentioned this and alluded to it at the beginning, and I don't know how much you can say, so I'm going to put you on the spot. And if you can't talk about it, you are welcome to not. Uh, but you kind of hinted that you were working on a horror movie now. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, um, you know, everything's kind of, with the pandemic and everything, we're sort of like holding everything right now. But um, I have been, uh, we're in pre-production on a movie called Sorry, Charlie which is an obsession, a queer obsession thriller. And I'll be directing and I'll also be in it. Oh, well, I cannot wait to see it. Uh, I look forward to that. Listeners, keep your eyes and ears open. Uh, Before we head off, because this is a show in service to the world of cinema, what have you been watching lately that you're digging or that's inspiring you or getting you through this moment in time? I liked um, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. I watched Unorthodox on Netflix. I watched Black Monday on Showtime. Um, just starting Ozark. Um, Tiger King was amazing, and I heard they're doing more now, and they're doing a Tiger King 2 about Siegfried and Roy, so I'll be watching that. Oh, yeah, R.I.P. Roy. He just passed away. I know. Now the story can be told. It has an ending. <laughs> uh yeah, that's quite, that's quite a lineup. Sounds like you've been been keeping busy. Although I guess, you know, when you're stuck at home, you do have the time to watch things. I've been certainly digging into a lot more than I usually have time for, which has been a blessing and a curse. And I've been so. doing a lot more Italian mom on TikTok. <laughs> ah, well, we, we love Italian moms. I love my Italian mom. I love your Italian mom because she is uh, an internet sensation unto herself. That she is. Uh Anything else we should keep our eyes open for? or uh... I mean, not really, since the world is in uncertainty, so is me. No truer sentence <laughs> could, could be uttered. Uh, where can people find you? Um, you can find me at What's Up Danny on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, blackpeoplemeet.com, JDate, Farmers Only, Christian Mingo, and Venmo. Ah, you know, the, uh, the, the Farmers Meet is the one that I'm going to be looking at myself. Um, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk horror movies, talk about your career, talk about your activism and everything that you do. Uh, I, I, you know, I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your friendship. You're an awesome person. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you, Mikey V. Take care of you. (laughs) This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. I'm Michael Verratti. Good night. Good luck. And stay home. Dead for Filth, the Renegade Edition, is a June Gloom production in association with Sister Hyde. Dead for Filth is created and hosted by Michael Verratti and produced by Drew Phillips.